Well, I have a confession to make. Uh, normally, I have PowerPoint, and this morning I'm operating without it. Uh, I had worked on some, and I could even show you some of the things that are a little close, but last night as I came back to the notes, I'm just going to tell you that the Lord really redirected, and I ended up working much longer uh, than I fully expected, you know, kind of coming to it to put the finishing touches on it, and uh, really had a blessed time in the Word, and my prayer is that that will translate into a blessed time for you this morning, but there's no visual aid behind me. So for those of you who are visual learners, I'm really sorry, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and help, okay? That's part of the reason I prayed. Um, Some of us think in pictures, don't we? And I I recognize that that's helpful. But one of the blessings of God's Word, and and this is something that the Apostle Paul tells us, that, that, that these truths are, first of all, spiritually discerned. And so let's just, let's just lean into the Holy Spirit this morning and ask Him to show us what we really need to understand. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans 15. We were in Romans 12 over the last couple of weeks looking at some of the particular one another commands or instructions. And uh, this morning we're in Romans 15 making a little progress uh, through the New Testament looking for more of these one another passages. So I'm going to read uh, the first 13 verses, which will take just about two minutes, so you follow along. If you're using one of our our pew Bibles in the book rack right in front of you, you can turn to page 949, and you'll find the letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, almost 2,000 years ago. We've got some old, old writing in front of us here, but it is good. So Romans 15. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another. There it is. There's the main command we're going to be studying this week and next. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Now, this section is part of really two chapters that we're going to spend some time in. And I said just a moment ago, today and next Sunday, realistically, there's probably a third Sunday coming, but we'll talk about that. And if you could read these two chapters in their entirety, what you would find is that the Apostle Paul is addressing some really challenging things that are taking place in a church at Rome, a church much like ours. 
filled with ordinary people from various walks of life, some of them Gentiles, some of them Jews, some of them uh, actually business owners, other than, others of them actually slaves, a variety of, of settings. And, you know, in that group, as there would be in ours, there are differences of opinion. And some of those opinions had actually come to a point of creating great conflict. And some people were actually despising other members of their church. They looked at their opinion and basically said, I don't know how you could conclude that, how you could ever think that that activity or that way of practicing your Christianity would honor God. You are not a spiritual person. So some were despising others, and some were judging similarly, but basically saying, there's no way you're a spiritual person. I just don't know how you could even think that way, do that kind of stuff. So you have people dividing over opinions. You know, we're all people of opinions, aren't we? And I was reminded just this past week, I had multiple opportunities to fill out surveys, companies, businesses wanting my opinions. And sometimes you see these political surveys that pop up. It's like, how did you get my email address? I don't really want to tell you what my political opinion is. Or maybe it's a a religious opinion or a consumer opinion. But this particular week, it had to do with food. Einstein Brothers wants to know my opinion about my last visit. And they even told me they'll give me a dollar off my next visit. (laughs) And Kristen will tell you that I'm just cheap enough to, like, I did it. (laughs) I got the little code, and I'm going to slap that thing on the counter when I get my next bagel and coffee. Get my dollar off. There's an old saying you're entitled to your opinion. And then we have other taglines we put on that. You know, you're entitled to your opinion. You can be wrong in that opinion or, or whatever. And most of us really do feel entitled to our opinions, don't we? And part of that is we feel like our opinions are based on some pretty good thinking and reasoning. So whether it's of a political nature or uh, food uh, opinions or religious or moral opinions or economic opinions, whatever it might be, most of us feel like we formed them for really good reasons. So of course it makes sense. Of course I'm entitled to them. But what happens in a neighborhood or a marriage or a workplace when there are very different opinions on things that are really important to us? What happens when those very different opinions show up in a church like ours? I've compiled a list through the years of topics that people have very different opinions on, even in the church. I'm going to give you, real quickly, I'm going to run through this, and we'll explore this in greater detail, but um, I I have at least 20 headings under which there are a number of of examples of of opinions. Good people disagree, or I should say have different opinions on entertainment. For instance, what kind of video games should a believer play? How long should a believer play in any given day? Is online gaming always sinful? What kind of movies can a believer view? Should we ever view something that's rated R? Would some, and if you say, no, we never should, would something like Schindler's List be an exception to that no rated R movie policy you have? What do we read? Is fantasy literature good? Is Tolkien good? I heard maybe he's a Christian. Others say, absolutely not. And what about the Harry Potter series? How about language? What language is wrong? What's inappropriate? What's just kind of marginal? What about euphemisms? How about your dress? What's appropriate? What's modest? How dressed up should we be for Sunday services? Should men wear hats in buildings? What about facial hair? Uh, May ladies wear pants or shorts or sleeveless tops? And what about tattoos? How about the use of tobacco? If you grew up in the South as I did, tobacco is just a part and way of life. And I had good friends, committed Christians, whose fathers were tobacco farmers, and that's how they put them through Christian school. And we know that smoking cigarettes will kill you. 
Pipes and cigars seem to be a little more socially acceptable in some ways. But for a Christian, what about the use of alcohol? Didn't Jesus make wine at the wedding feast? And others say we shouldn't drink any at all. How about our food? Should a Christian eat organic or processed food? Does the Bible actually have secret recipes for healthy eating? Some people say Ezekiel... Yeah. You start laughing, and I know I just touched on something that's real. Some people have said that Ezekiel 4.9 has a special recipe, and that if we really loved God, we would bake all of our bread with those particular ingredients and probably live a cancer-free life. How about the use of money? Do New Testament believers still tithe? Some say we should just make it a matter of grace-giving. And if you do tithe, what percentage of your income does God really want? Can I buy a new car or a new house, or should I always choose what is used? And what about my clothing? Can I buy new from a retail store, or should I purchase my clothing secondhand? How about holidays? Some holidays are no-brainers. Of course you would celebrate the birth and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but Halloween, really? Isn't that a holiday of celebrating darkness? But I'm saying there's a lot of free candy in the neighborhood. <laughs> How about children? When should couples start a family? How about birth control? Or they're not quite as hot a topic these days, but several years ago, the Duggars were quite the anomaly. People looking at their lives thinking, really, is 18, 19, how many kids are too many? How about parenting techniques? What does the Bible say about discipline? And when it says, do not spare the rod, is it actually talking about spanking my child? Are timeouts in the Bible? Maybe I should count to three or four or five before I jerk a knot in my kid. <laughs> Medical treatment, homeopathic or traditional. Education, do we send our children to private school, public school, Christian school? What about homeschool? Things like dating and courtship or politics or environment. My list is, goes on and on here. And, I, and then we get into the, the area of, of styles of worship and how we do church and even ordering the church calendar. All kinds of things that really good people have strong opinions on and often become those points of contention and debate. And when they become points of contention and debate, it actually not only divides our attention and, and begins to separate us one from another, but it dilutes our energy in doing the work of the gospel that really matters. And so whereas Jesus commissions us as his followers, followers to go into all the world and make disciples, we end up having these in-house arguments and discussions, not doing the work that Jesus has called us to, and, and actually developing animosity one toward another. And when I state it like that, we're all like, well, that should never be. Right. But we often end up at that point, don't we? Well, Paul has a corrective for that. And we will not read through chapter 14 this morning. You can do that over the next week or so. We're going to go back and look at some of the specific teaching that he has there. But before he even gets to really showing us what that might look like and some of the differences of opinion at Rome, he lays down this significant principle that we have read here in chapter 15 that our welcoming of one another, because that's a particular one another, and, and I'm holding my arms open wide because it has the idea of accepting one another, but he ties it directly to the welcome we have received in Jesus, and that's what we want to look at this morning. Now go back to verse 1 of chapter 15, and again, let's cast it in context, because there are a couple of things here that, that really stood out to me last night in a way that they have not before, as many times as I've read this and actually preached through this passage a couple of times. But I'm just, I'm, I'm more amazed at Jesus this morning than I was yesterday. Now verses 1 and 2 
tell us as followers of Jesus that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And that's two different groups in the context of the church. Strong believers, faith is mature, love Jesus, want to serve him, want to honor him, making life choices of of a variety of kinds, and yet there are weak believers, some of whom can't participate in even some of what we might think would be ordinary activities of life because they still associate it with their life before they were converted. A variety of reasons there, and we'll explore those in in the coming week or so. But it comes down to differences of opinion as to what the Christian life of service would look like. There's no sin issue involved here, because sin is off limits for strong and weak alike, right? Uh, For instance, nobody can be drunk with wine or alcohol. That's sin. But there might be differences of opinion as to the use of that. So the strong, Paul goes on to say, should not please themselves, end of verse 1. Then he says in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good in order to build him up. So two purposes. Now let's pause right here because we need to understand the word please. What does it mean to please someone else? Well, the modern-day definition would be that you do things that make them happy. That's not exactly what Paul is saying here. And remember, the English translation that you and I are looking at was originally written by Paul in the Greek language. Some of you who've studied multiple languages know that rarely, rarely, in translating one language into another, can you just do one word for another and both language groups or both cultures go, ah, same concept, just a little different word. No, often what we have to do is to try to, so, so Paul in first century Christianity, writing this to the church at Rome, writes it in Greek. He's trying to express a particular concept, so we want to understand the concept, and then we go find a word that is best suited for us to understand it in our, in our 21st century English-speaking context. Please is a good word. I don't want to act like the translators were, you know, missed an opportunity here because the the translators that work with this kind of thing are a thousand times smarter than I am. But the biblical definition and understanding of this word has more to do with fitting or adapting your life, your thinking, your lifestyle uh, to meet someone else where he or she is. All right, so it's an adaption. I I want you to think of the word pleasing is adapting my life to the culture I'm a part of. And specifically, Paul, uh, Jesus, through Paul, is teaching us to adapt ourselves even to the weakness of others in order to serve them. Now, we got to pause there and just think about that because that's not really typical human thinking, is it? I mean, most of us actually want others to adapt to us. Or we want them to meet us where we are. And that's why we so often make life about ourselves. It's why some of us, when we're either playing the game or watching our kids play the game, contest the referee's call on the soccer field. Because we think that his or her cause, calls should conform with what we think is fair and just and right at that moment. I mean, how could that referee be so blind? Occasionally, when I'm not walking in the spirit. (laughs) Right, honey? Yeah. I've been known to say, hey, ref, you're missing a great game. 
And I've repented of that on several occasions. But that's Danny trying to make this game about my point, what pleases me. Why do we post the things we do on Facebook or Instagram? Isn't it very often because we, we want to be pleased? It may be that the opinions or the affirmations or comments of other people make us feel good. They, bu- they build us up, kind of you know, secure us in our identity, but often we are, we are seeking our own good, and, and so we want other people to adapt to us. Why do we host some of the social events that we do? Sometimes it is because we want to be pleased or because we're actually seeking other people's approval. So the normal human tendency is that we would actually live to be pleased, and we're happy when everybody else uh, accommodates themselves to us, to our thinking, to our cultural norms, to our family traditions. It's like, hey, come into my world and live as I do, think as I do, be what I am. This is a particularly challenging point in my own soul and some of what I was just thinking through last night and again this morning. You know, what really motivates me? Even as a pastor, it feels good to my ego after a a morning service together when people say, oh, what a great message, which sometimes I translate wrongly into, you're a great guy. And I have to just fight that back and just say, oh, God, forgive me. I'm just a a table waiter here. God's the great one. His word is what gives us life. My opinions don't matter one little bit. But, it, but even there, even in serving God, we have these mixed motives sometimes. I think it's really important for us to say, what motivates me to say what I do on the sideline or on the field? What motivates me to post what I do or, or comment when I do? What motivates me to invite people into my home or go out for uh, a meal with someone? Now look at the text again because verses 3 and 8, and we're going to kind of pick our way through this passage and some of the highlights that that really show us Christ. First of all, verse 3, Christ did not please himself, But as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Then look at verse 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now, both of these passages are helping us understand what it means that you live to please someone else. Christ didn't come to earth just to make a bunch of people happy. He came to live and die and rise again that would ultimately accomplish good for people people who didn't even want him, which we'll see in just a moment. Now let's kind of go in reverse order. Verse eight, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. You know, a neat little thing, uh, the men have just begun a study of some of the New Testament passages that describe the office of elder and deacon. Do you know that the term that is used here by Paul to describe the service of Jesus is the same term that we understand and translate into the present day concept of deacon. Jesus came to be a deacon, if you will. Now, not in the formal sense where he held office in a, in a local church like this, but the bigger concept, he came to serve. And I used this term a moment ago. That term is used in other places to describe really what would amount to a table waiter. And we've all been out to eat enough to understand that that's, that's not typically a career people aspire to. 
Often you'll find people waiting tables because they're in transition or they're paying their way through college. Uh, a few restaurants are, are you know, high-end enough where people can make a really good living as a, a very fine table waiter. But by and large, it's kind of entry-level work, isn't it? And that's part of what you need to keep in mind. Jesus entered the world at a very humble point, assuming the, the role, the position of a table waiter. Now, what was the, what was the effect of that? Well, I, I want to just read a few paragraphs from a very helpful book on the conscience that two men that I, I know, one a little bit better than the other, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, have written concerning the conscience. And on this very point, uh, they write, ponder this. The Son of God, who was not a Jew, that is, in, as he existed throughout eternity as the Son of God, he was not a particular ethnic uh, uh, origin. The Son of God, who was not a Jew, left his complete freedom in heaven and became a good little Jewish boy and then a good law-keeping Jewish man. The whole time he perfectly obeyed the very laws that he himself had given on Mount Sinai 1,500 years before. There's one of those mind-blowing thoughts. He's the one who gave Moses the law, but then he comes to earth 1,500 years later and submits himself. Even They go on to write, even obeying laws that he knew were temporary because he designed them to be temporary. For example, don't eat pork, worship only in Jerusalem. The only laws he pushed back against were those that the Pharisees and others had added or completely misunderstood. Jesus, in his life, practiced what he later preached through Paul, right here in Romans 14 and 15. He became a servant to a people who were different from him. He submitted himself to a culture that was foreign to him. He welcomed Jewish culture. He fit into Jewish culture. He wasn't some counterculture hippie who railed against everything traditional. He wasn't a weird outsider or a misanthrope. And I had to look that word up. That means someone who just hates people. He went to synagogue with his parents and to the temple in Jerusalem when he was 12. He regularly celebrated Passover and other feasts in Jerusalem. He rested on the Sabbath and attended synagogue service. He became a servant to the Jews and their culture. What did the Son of God purpose to accomplish when he, for the glory of God, voluntarily became what he was not, a servant to a particular culture that was not originally his own? What was Jesus trying to accomplish? Well, we read through it in the text. And if you look at verses 8 through 12 in particular, where Paul quotes four different Old Testament passages, Christ was doing three things. They're, they're actually named there in verse 8. First, he wanted to show God's truthfulness. What God said through the prophets in the Old Testament, he absolutely meant. Number two, to show, uh, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Patriarchs like Moses and David, prophets like Isaiah. God made promises to them that through Messiah, salvation would come to the nations of the world. And finally, he actually says in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And what's in view is not just that Gentiles, like most of us are in this room today, would understand that God is merciful and go, oh, wow, God is merciful. We give him credit for being mercy. No, rather that they would experience that mercy through the forgiveness of all their sins, the complete cleansing of that guilty record which we've been studying in recent weeks that they would come into right relationship with God and say oh God when I deserve to die a sinner's death be condemned in hell forever you showed mercy and forgave me and brought me into relationship with you I will forever be your child that is astonishing unbelievable awesome mercy 
And so when Gentiles are praising God in that way, when those who were once unbelievers begin to believe and in faith see God in all of his glory, that, that's the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. God means what he says. He doesn't lie. He always accomplishes his purposes. And Christ entered the world as a servant so that those things would happen. Now go back to verse 3. Let's think a little bit more on what it means that he did not please himself. And Paul actually says, as it is written. Now, where is this written? Well, I can tell you it's not Plato or Aristotle. This particular portion, that little phrase, as it is written, is often a clue in the New Testament that the, the writer's just about to quote the Old Testament. And in this case, it's Psalm 69, verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Well, who's talking? And who's talking to whom? Well, it's actually Messiah speaking to God, saying the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, have fallen on me. Well, Jesus is the Messiah, isn't he? So Paul is showing us what it means that Christ did not please himself in a very specific way. And if you you go back to verses one and two and grab Again, what's, what's Paul trying to teach us as people? Well, the strong should bear with the failings of the weak. So in one sense, we could look at verse 3 and say, who's the strong one? Christ. Who are the weak ones? Uh, the ones who are reproaching God or insulting him. So if the strong are to bear with the failings of the weak, first of all, what's the failing of the weak ones in verse 3? Well, it's not just like they kind of made an honest mistake and didn't really mean to it. No, these people are actually insulting the God who created them. That's in the sin category. That's like puts you in serious trouble with God. I don't care whether you shake your fist in his face, you tell him to get lost, or you say, I don't believe in you, or I will not obey your law. I mean, you can insult God in a number of ways, but, but the strong one, Jesus Christ, is actually bearing in himself the same insults that are directed at God. Why did he do that? Do you remember Romans 5, verse 6? We looked at this last week, I think even two weeks in a row, I, I touched on this. Back in Romans 5, Paul wrote, while we were still weak, weak and strong, we're the weak ones, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So the spiritual weakness is actually ungodliness, it's rebellion. Ungodliness, it sometimes expresses itself in, itself in insulting God. Here he's making those insults his own. Standing between the spiritually weak and ungodly ones who are insulting God, his Father, and saying, I'll take them. There are a number of other passages we could turn to. I was reading at the end of Matthew 27 where Jesus is being falsely accused and then wrongly condemned and then beaten and mocked and reviled. There are a number of terms that the scriptures use uh, to describe what he endured and then ultimately crucified. That was the most intense hour of this insulting and Paul captured this, captures this in his letter to the Philippians saying, though 
Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So really what you have to understand when you look at Romans 15 verse 3 is when it says Christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's just one Old Testament passage that Paul could go to that he brings forward and he's casting it in the larger context of the gospel message that he's been writing in Romans and that he wrote to many other first century churches and, and what becomes clear to us in our view is that Christ served us not just in a life of suffering and of humble ministry, but even the point that he went to death on a cross. Death on a cross. If Jesus had not been willing to please the weak ones, and again, not in the sense of making us happy, but in the sense of of adapting himself, entering our culture, being exactly what we are, and they were in that day, and then taking the insults that we were hurling against God by our rebellion and animosity toward him and, and bearing them on himself and carrying them all the way across, not one of us would have hope of eternal life. Because you can't be good enough in the few years on planet Earth that God's giving you to earn heaven. You just can't. Because God demands Perfection. And there's not one person here who's lived perfectly up to this moment. And even if you think you have, just let some of us walk around with you for 24 hours. We'll point out some things that aren't what they ought to be. Some of you are terrified by that. It's like, oh, don't go there. Oh, listen, don't be terrified of that. You bring all of that sin and rebellion and even the insults, some of you have actually spoken against God. Cried out maybe at a point saying, just leave me alone, God. Listen, you can turn right around and say, God, will you forgive me? And he will. Forgives it all. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to his word because he's truthful. He never lies. And he's just to forgive your sins. How can he be just and forgive things that are actually wrong? Because Jesus died in your place. It's like he already sent him to death row, and he doesn't, he doesn't send two people to death row for the same sin if one of them is willing to confess it and forsake it and say, I'm trusting in Jesus and his death in my place. And God says, we, can, we will happily do that. This, again, I've been saying this, this is really good news. Christ demonstrates his love for us by serving us. Now look at verse seven again. Because that's some of the substance and, and truth that you have to carry into this when it says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So he enters the world, wasn't formerly a, a Jewish man, right? But he becomes a Jew, enters completely, adapts himself to that culture, fulfills everything that God the Father wanted him to do, and the only reason there is a welcome for you and me is that Jesus did all of that. Now here's where we're gonna have to conclude this week, and there's so much more. And, and I hope you feel as I do. I, I'm standing here going, I can't be done yet. I, I need another hour. 
but I'm not going to take it. William, okay. Did you say that? Oh, oh, you did. Okay. I'm about to give Joseph credit. Sorry, Greg. I want to go back to some of the really devotional and powerful thoughts, and, and I don't want you to forget these. Some of these are included in your out-the-door handout. We're just priming the pump for where we're going to go next week. I go back to the book that Nacelli and Crowley wrote. What happens when people do things like this, that is welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us? What did the Son of God purpose to accomplish when he, for the glory of God, voluntarily became what he was not, a servant to a particular culture that was not originally his own? You and your church are living, breathing results of Christ being willing to serve a culture not his own. To love people so different from him, just like he tells you to do in Romans 14. Jesus preached what he practiced. And they turned that phrase around. Jesus was the first to practice it. The first to become a servant to a culture not his own. What happened when Peter obeyed Christ and became a servant to a culture most certainly not his own? And you can read that story in Acts 10. And I'll tell you what happened. Peter, who was formerly a Jew, is used by God to open the door to Gentile people. The first one was a man named Cornelius. And they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they responded in repentance and faith. And hundreds and hundreds were converted. Because Peter left what he was comfortable with and, and stepped right into their world and said, you know what, spiritually speaking, I can become a Gentile as easily as I was or as comfortable as I was growing up a Jew. Because when you're a follower of Jesus, it's not actually about your ethnic background and family traditions and cultural norms that you feel really good in. When you become a child of God, you realize you are free to go be whatever he wants you to be, wherever he wants you to be. And I've said through the years, both to my family and the church we came from, do you know when you get a hold of this, you start realizing, I can live anywhere on planet Earth and build relationships with any group of people. Because my life is no longer about being descended from Irish, Scot, English, and German. That, that's what the majority of my background is. It's not about being from South Carolina. It's not about being from the United States of America. I'm a citizen of this king who entered the world as a servant. So what happens when we really get a hold of this? Well, Jesus was the first to practice it. Peter then did it in Acts 10. And there was this, they go on to write, there was, it was just the beginning of Gentile fruitfulness, spiritual concept of multiplication. What happened when Paul obeyed Christ and became all things to all men? More fruitfulness, fruitfulness among the Gentiles. A fruitfulness that has spread over the whole earth right to this present day. What's gonna happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to the people in your own church who aren't like you? who make you uncomfortable. What? There's nobody like that here. Oh, yeah, there is. Let's be honest. Some of you already sized up and assessed, and you're like, you know, those folks just see things a little differently. Let's just sit over here. <laughs> just like the Romans, I mean, we want to judge the motives and the spirituality, but we're not going to, are we? because Christ has welcomed us. What's gonna happen when you obey Christ and become a servant to people outside your church who aren't like you and who make you uncomfortable? And there are a few of those in this valley. 
Just like there are a few of those back in South Carolina where I came from, and there are a few of those in Guam where Kevin came from, and there are a few of those in New York City and LA, and everywhere you go, that's just people. What's going to happen? And here's the answer. The same kind of fruitfulness that came about when Jesus and Peter and Paul laid down their lives in the same way. Unimaginable fruitfulness. And that's where I I was just parked at this point last night and just even praying through the late hours and, and then again early this morning saying, oh God, that's what we want. Now, here's the double encouragement. It's not just truth where we see this prospect and say, you know, if we, if we do this, then maybe God would bless us in this way. But you know, the same promises that motivated Jesus, promises given to Moses and David and Isaiah, among others, the same promises that motivated him to enter the world as a servant are still in force. And God has not yet brought all the nations to that place where they glorify him for his mercy. But wouldn't it be awesome if God would use this little congregation to just grow the population of true disciples in the valley? And I'm not suggesting that that's a possibility. I'm suggesting to you that God intends to do it through us if we will live like this. So lay down your agenda to please self and to get all the approval and accolades from other people and say, look at me, look at me, look at our family, look at my job, look at my company. Stop it. Our point is to say, look at the God of mercy. We should be in hell at this moment, but we're not there. We're here. So we welcome one another in the same way that Jesus said, come to me. Yes, come with your sin. Confess it, forsake it. We'll cleanse it away. We'll remove the record of your guilt. Come to me and enjoy all the blessings that I died to secure and that I rose again to verify. Don't you love Jesus? Some of you say, I'm not sure. I get it. All of us have been there at one time or another. Will you just ask Jesus to continue speaking to you? Will you say to him right now, I'm not sure about all this, but I'm hearing some things that are pretty attractive. Hearing some things that are confusing. Will you help me understand? There's so much that he has already done that he intends to do and he wants you to be a part of it. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Welcoming one another is not just about our obedience to the commands of Christ. It's actually about our fruitfulness as individuals and as a congregation. We want Gospel Hope Church to reflect this kind of spirit and heart where, where there's no there's no hidden agenda where there's no unspoken house rules. Well, if you go to that church, you actually need to be of this race or this economic status or this educational background or this career path. None of that matters in God's household. Let's make sure it doesn't even find one little point of entrance. I think all of us long to be accepted And God's the only one ultimately who can do that, but but that's exactly what he's done through Jesus. He's welcomed you. And he's saying, now that you've experienced that, will you welcome one another? I'm gonna ask you to join me in faith if you can and just say, Lord, please forgive me for living to please myself. And whether it be in your household, your marriage, your workplace, your school, 
even in this church, some of you have been living for self. And God's saying, just turn away from that. Confess that as the sin that it is. And now just devote yourself to pleasing others. That is adapting yourself to their culture, entering it with a view that you could bring them the ultimate good and blessing, which is Jesus. Will you devote yourself to that? And some of you say, I don't even know how I'm going to live that out this week. Hey, you just submit your heart to Jesus right now and then say, Jesus, show me. And he's going to give you the words to say at the right moment. He's going to guide you in the actions you need to take. And we probably won't see the entire world turn to Jesus Christ in salvation this week. But maybe there will be one. Maybe there will be five. I don't know. We just openly state the truth and God's the one who causes spiritual light to shine. Will you do that? And let me just extend this final word of invitation. Some of you are here this morning and you're just, you're checking it out. You're listening, trying to process. But you might be saying, you know, I have not had a real relationship with the God that you're preaching about and teaching about here, but I want to. I'd love to talk with you in the little break we're going to have or after the service is done. Please don't leave today, but let's chat for just a moment. We may not even have time to have the whole conversation today, but we can set up a time to, to get together, and I would just love to show you. Remember, at, when Jesus calls us to follow him and serve him, we're like table waiters, so I'm not the master chef, that's Jesus, but I would love to just show you, as a good table waiter would, how you can have the, the food of eternal life how you can drink, spiritually speaking, from Jesus and be satisfied once and for all. I'd love to do that. Father, take the words that you have spoken to us by your Spirit and seal them. And even in this sermon, if, if I've preached opinions that are not accurately reflecting your ultimate truth, just let those be forgotten right now. We want only your word to remain. We want only your authoritative, life-giving gospel to remain. And so I ask that you would bless us in this way, in Jesus' name, amen.